1: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of fight back from the week that was. Fixing health care, home care and long term care are becoming the dominant election issues with the Ontario vote just over a month away. All three leaders, the PC's Doug Ford in his bid for re-election, NDP leader Andrea Horvath and the Liberal Stephen Del Duca are all focused on issues around older voters. Certainly, this is a smart strategy since Zoomers, especially those between the ages of 65 and 74, turn out in the highest numbers, with 75 percent committed to voting in elections. And it's also people in this age group who do not want to end up in long-term care homes when they become elderly after hearing horror stories of neglect and isolation during the pandemic. The progressive conservatives have announced a billion dollars over three years for home care. The New Democrats have unveiled a platform to fix home care and senior care and take profits out of nursing homes. And the liberals are also promising to expand home care with a commitment to get rid of for-profit care by 2028. On Monday, Libby was joined by the Zoomer squad to discuss this developing dynamic in the Ontario election campaign. Peter Mugrich is senior editor of Zoomer magazine. Bill Van Gorder is chief operating and chief policy officer of CARP. And David Kravitz is chief membership officer at CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media.
2: I think it's great that everybody's talking about it. I think the best thing that can happen to seniors in Ontario is to have all three parties fighting over uh, how to correct the many problems that we have and getting into a debate about what to do. So there's nothing in here not to like. I would just caution everybody that none of this stuff is ideological or philosophical. They're all going to claim to want to do it. The proof will be in the execution. And what we've suffered from in the past is, you know, lousy execution. So let's see whether they
3: can implement this.
4: Bill, is it enough?
3: No, it's not. It's not enough. We're so far behind in in home care for the province that uh, uh, almost uh, anything that they promise is not enough. Is it a start? Uh, yes, it could well be, although there's some glaring uh, uh, pieces that that aren't in uh, this plan, uh, not only a detail of how they're going to carry it out, but it appears that all the money that they're they're looking at is going to support uh, government-supported home care. And one of the big issues, of course, is that uh, a lot of people depend and continue to depend on private home care, and there's nothing in it that looks like it's going to help them except uh, if they raise the salaries in the uh, not-for-profit government, and they're going to steal employees uh, from the uh, for-profit, so we'd really like to see them deal with that uh, with that issue and explain how they're going to make sure that everybody who needs home care gets it, no matter what the source of their supply. Peter, whether it's enough funding or whether you know the system can handle. Um,
5: home care right now, I think it's very interesting, the language they're using, it's home care. They're just, for the first time, it's sort of, this is a huge promise that, you know, we're doing home care. And we haven't seen that language in any promises anywhere. So I, I think that's a major step forward. And, uh, you know, once something gets funding, it generally gets more funding and gets more attention and it sort of, it snowballs, its effectiveness snowballs. So so I think that's a very important first step to get it into the, uh, you know, Out there into, into the media so people, people can see, you know, how important this issue is. Carp's been hammering it for years and it's out there now. So, so that's a good step.
4: That's a very interesting point, Peter. And David, we're also hearing from the opposition. The NDP uh, leader just unveiled, unveiled her platform, and she's talking about taking better care of, of, of seniors and fixing everything. And, uh, of course, uh, she could not answer the question of where the money's going to come from.
2: Well, none of them can. It's easier to promise it and spread it out over time. Um, but I'm I'm a little bit with uh, you know Peter on this that if the language changes if the focus changes if they're all promising home care it's almost like they're inviting uh, us to scrutinize outcomes for the first time and the more they're uh, the more it becomes a topic the more the dialogue goes deeper and some of those issues uh, you know you just made the point about middlemen for example I remember last week on your show I was there. That uh, horrible call, a very distressing call from the lady whose husband finally got into the new facility in Ajax, but how exhausting it was for her to deal with home care, to find out where to get home care, home care workers not showing up on time. Uh, it was a, it was a, I've, I've been haunted by that call almost all week, how terrible her experience was in trying to deal with the home care system. And that's where, you know, the proof will be we can make an announcement. We can, we can throw money at it and it's, we should applaud that. It's great. Finally waking up that this is a major topic. Let's see you perform. Let's see you deliver. And, um, they're inviting that kind of scrutiny by making these promises. And shame on us if we don't uh, subject to them to that scrutiny.
1: David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. And Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating and Chief Policy Officer of CARP, A New Vision of Aging. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. We learned earlier in April that Russian and Belarusian athletes will be banned from Wimbledon this year, the prestigious Grand Slam tennis tournament run by the private All England Club, where they make their own rules. Members of the ATP, which governs men's professional tennis, are not on side with this decision. Some Russian artists have been barred from performing, like soprano Anna Trebko. At the Met in New York City. The Canada Council for the Arts has announced the withdrawal of support from partnerships and projects involving Russian or Belarusian artists. But there are many people on the other side of this debate, arguing that it's not fair to individual Russian athletes and artists, and them playing or performing won't have much impact on Vladimir Putin's war. To discuss, Libby was joined on Monday by Katya Grubisik, a Canadian writer, editor, and translator who made that case in The Walrus. Svetlana Dvoretsky, Russian-Canadian president and executive producer of Show One Productions, and retired Ukrainian professional tennis player Alexander Dolgopolov, who is living in the capital, Kiev.
6: I think that's the right decision because... Putin uses, uh, uses their sports for propaganda very much. And at the moment, we've seen very, very poor uh, reactions from Russian tennis players. They haven't spoke up. They haven't really made any actions. There was one or two people saying just no war, which is, for me, with the magnitude, what's happening here is a, is a little bit weak. I think that's uh, the correct uh, take, to be honest. And also, I believe that the magnitude of what's happening here, you know, like every day we are seeing these tens of different uh, messages of children rapes, which is the most painful stuff that we see. And uh, it's massive. It's, not, it's systematic. It's not like uh, one time here and one time there, which obviously happens on work. It's terrible what's happening and I think that tennis has to stand up stronger, not just say they condemn it and uh, do nothing. And I think the sport is, uh, is in uh, in Russia, so okay. for me it's a fair decision.
4: I am now joined by Katya Grubusik, Canadian writer, editor, and translator, and Svetlana Dvoretsky, a Russian Canadian president and executive producer of Show One Productions, who has brought many Russian artists to Canadian audiences. What is your take on this? The artist, it's not
1: just uh, just a profession. There are different people with different opinions with different political views. Generalization of Of the artist being Russian or a Belarusian is really not something that is fair. If I were to take the position and voice my opinion, my opinion would be: let's not generalize this idea, and uh, and let's really see what the people, the particular artists that are really deserve to perform in the West, they should.
4: Katya, what is your view on this? We were just ta- talking to Alex delgopolov a uh, yes. tennis player, and he says, "Hey, Putin uses uh famous athletes and artists for propaganda, so the ban is fine. What's your view
7: uh, I mean Putin does and i my I sympathize entirely with Mr. Delgopolov and he made some excellent points, and i don't I think it'd be hard for press, hard pressed to find the Ukrainian. Uh, person right now who would say yes by all means you know let's let's boost the, the Ukrainian artists and, and athletes. I think that artists are often imperiled, and so this is kind of adding insult to often financial duress and and professional duress. I also I think that initially the cancellations that happened right at the beginning, especially you know um, for the, the most notable here in Canada, were Alexander Malofer, the pianist. Um, there was also there were a couple of other um, other instances worldwide. Um, of artists whose performances were cancelled, and it seemed like a very superficial reaction to a much deeper problem. Um, It seemed to mimic, for example, the fact that the West is enacting these sanctions, even though we're still buying billions of dollars and euros of oil, of Russian oil, constantly every day. And so there's there's the the facade, there's the presentation, and then there's how much actually we're willing to enact to, to isolate Russia, and how effective that is. Which is a whole. I mean, I'm not a geopolitical expert, but that's a whole other problem. Um, I think this certainly isn't the time to be. You know, I wouldn't be putting on, for example, a, uh, a festival programming the the great Russian composers. Um, but I'm not sure that individual targeting individuals is ever a really useful way to enact sanctions.
1: Katya Grubisik, Canadian writer, editor, and translator for The Walrus, Svetlana Dvoretsky, Russian-Canadian president and executive producer of Show One Productions, and retired Ukrainian professional tennis player Alexander Dogopolov, who joined us on the line from Kyiv. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, Fight Back's New Recovering Politicians panel.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. On Tuesday, Libby introduced a brand new panel to fight back. Our Recovering Politicians panel heard every Tuesday going forward after the noon news. With an Ontario election in a few weeks' time, a horrible war in Ukraine affecting the whole world, the challenge of recovering from COVID, and increasing polarization at every turn— There will be no shortage of issues providing for informative and lively conversations. Charles Souza is already part of our Fight Back family. He is a former Liberal Ontario finance minister. Howard Hampton is the former Ontario NDP leader. And Lisa Raitt is the former deputy leader of the Federal Conservative Party.
2: One of the things that I do right now as well is I look after my husband who has young-onset Alzheimer's, and he is currently in a long—he's actually in a specialized unit at a long-term care facility. And I think a lot about long-term care in this province, actually, and I'm very interested to see
4: what the three parties come up with. Howard, what's on your mind?
8: Uh, How much trouble the world is in these days. And the world is in a lot of trouble. It doesn't matter if you look at uh, what's happening in Russia, Ukraine. If you, uh, look at the election that France just came through, if you look at what's happening in places like, in countries like China, India, if you look to the South, uh, and our, our closest neighbors, um, the world is in a lot of trouble and, uh, Canadians, uh, we may think that we can, uh, stand safely aside and it's not going to bother us. Uh, it is going to bother us. Inflation is not, uh, something that is uh, local to Ontario or local to Canada. Inflation is something that's happening around the world, and I suspect that with what is happening in Russia and what's happening in Ukraine, it will get much worse. Um, and, and so uh, and what's happening in those countries uh, will also affect what happens in Canada, as we saw with uh, recent events in the United States. It's not lost on me that uh, in the occupation of Ottawa, much of the money to finance that actually came from people in the United States. So uh, stay, stay tuned to a world that is disrupted, whether it's climate change, whether it's uh, uh, the ambitions of Russia to reestablish itself as some sort of empire, whether it's uh, the ultra-right against, uh, seems like everyone else in France in politics, um, or whether it's what's happening in the United States, uh, we will be affected. Uh, Probably not positively.
4: Well, and, and we obviously already are. Charles, uh, what's top of mind for you? Daniel, yeah,
5: you know, I think a lot. I mean, I'm involved in a number of real estate development projects, and housing affordability is a real concern for me. I mean, I worry about young people, young adults. I have three, and they're just getting started in life. Just when you think they have enough for a down payment, suddenly it becomes out of reach again. Inflation it certainly has to do with it at higher rates have to do with it, but, uh, and I'm also worried about seniors on fixed income for capital preservation. So issues around affordability are a concern. The volatility and uncertainty in the marketplace also is a worry. To Howard's point, there's a lot of geopolitics happening, and it's affecting us directly here at home, and it's directing us not only by way of, of economics, but also socially with so much hate and, 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 and an infringement that seems to be accepted now, which kind of worries me as well.
4: Lisa, what would you like to leave us with?
2: I'm looking forward to the campaign. It is a different campaign this time because it isn't about whether or not you enjoyed Kathleen Harper. Kathleen Wins. Kathleen Harper, I just
4: made a... I just put them together, didn't I? <laughs> Kathleen Wins. Um, we, Kathleen we get Wins your point. Yeah. Yeah. And Charles, last 20 seconds to you.
5: Well, you know, Howard talked about peace in the world, and uh, and I'm talking about peace at home, too, and to everyone's point, we sort of want a bit more decorum, and a little bit more respect. I'm, a, I'm excited about the campaign that's coming up, maybe a bit more than most, uh, because, frankly, uh, I want to see what, what we're able to address as it relates to this whole notion of free speech, the hate that seems to be out there, and how is it that these uh, leaders are going to perform, and how are they going to debate, and how are they going to show some respect for one another as we go forward? I respect my colleagues here on the phone because I've worked with them in some capacity or another, and this is what it's all about, is recognizing that we may have different partisan views, but we always respect one another for their desire to make Canada and Ontario a better place.
1: Charles Sousa, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister, Lisa Raitt, a former deputy leader of the Federal Conservative Party, and Howard Hampton, former leader of the Ontario NDP. Fight Back's new Recovering Politicians panel heard every Tuesday after the noon news. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Is social media about to become even more problematic and pervasive than it is now? Elon Musk, the world's richest man, is buying Twitter for $44 billion and taking it private, saying he wants more free speech, while free speech is often code for hate speech conspiracy theories and all kinds of misinformation. If you're in the news business, you have to be on Twitter to be on top of the latest developments from verified sources, of course. And for now, Musk is promising to make Twitter better. For Reaction, Libby was joined by Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist based in London, Ontario. Well, I
9: think on the surface, it's easy to look through that lens. He's been on Twitter for years. He's got 83 million followers. He's an active user of it. He's used it to make most of his major announcements for his other companies, including Tesla and SpaceX, as well as Neuralink and the Boring Company and others. So, you know, he recognizes the power of Twitter, but he hasn't been very happy with how the company has been run for a number of years. And he's complained pretty openly about it. And he's tried to petition leadership from the outside. Uh, and I guess he probably reached a point where he figures, hey, I'm the world's richest guy. I can probably scrounge up the money some way rather than fighting them from the inside. Well, why don't I just buy them? And that's kind of why why we end up where we are. It is, it is you know, at, at its most cynical, it's a multi-billionaire who's decided that he wants to have the biggest megaphone, the biggest platform of everyone. And uh, he figures he can afford it. And, uh, and as a result, he's made this deal um, to buy, you know, what is un- essentially an underperforming company certainly wouldn't be able to afford Facebook. Um, but he's 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 essentially at that point now where he will have later this year his hands on the reins of probably one of the more influential social media platforms on planet Earth.
4: He himself has uh, posted some things that are uh, kind of unsavory. And he says he wants more free speech, and free speech is the bedrock of democracy. Uh, True, but uh, I think that, say, free speech uh, in conspiracy theories is antithetical to democracy. What do you think is going to happen? Do you see an explosion of the bad stuff?
9: I think he has an overly simplistic view or definition of what freedom of speech is and what it represents and he seems to believe that uh, you should be able to say whatever you want in any context that you want and you know have no consequences for that and we know full well that freedom of speech does have limitations that uh it does not encompass uh, hate filled speech it does not encompass xenophobia um that you know there are protections for those who would be bullied and stalked uh, and Twitter, unfortunately, has a terrible track record in that regard. Early on in its history, it became known as a very toxic platform because its architecture is wide open. Anyone can, can reach out to anyone else. There aren't the kind of the natural protections that are built into other platforms. Uh, and so the company has introduced uh, restrictions, updates to its terms of use, its terms of service to curb those extremes of behavior, but it never quite figured it out. It never quite solved it. Now along comes Elon Musk basically saying, well, those content moderation tactics and tools and rules, those amount to a violation of freedom of speech, which we all know is logically wrong, but it's essentially a dog whistle to those who would use the platform for darker purposes. And I fear that Elon Musk owning the company will open the door to that. That it essentially, anyone who wants to pursue those extremist views and doesn't want to be uh, held accountable for them, doesn't want to face the consequences, guess what? We now know what your favorite social media platform is.
4: One good thing that he is promising to do is to get rid of the bots.
9: He's pledged to get rid of them, he's pledged to be more transparent about how the algorithm works. Uh, and and uh, which, of course, would be a good thing. So there are a few things in there that he sort of planted that he's, he's indicated, you know, will be helpful for the rest of us. But again, with Elon Musk, it's always hard to tell. He'll say something that grabs our attention, that, you know, snags a headline, um, gets a lot of attention. And then, you know, a couple of days later, he'll walk it back. So hard to tell until he actually owns the company and starts acting as its CEO and president. But for now, he said a lot of crazy things that make me wonder sort of which direction Twitter is going to end up going forward. But there at least is some hope that not all of it is going to be bad.
1: Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist in London, Ontario. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's best of fight back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the fight back knockout call of the week.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown.
1: Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. Eileen phoned from Newcastle to talk about banning Russian athletes and performers from competition and the stage I agree
5: with uh, excluding the players unfortunately it's very unfair for the players the tennis players but anything we can do is the standoff against Putin to show uh, disapproval of what he's doing in Ukraine uh, I think we have to do it we've got to we've got to keep hitting him with things and you know we all like to have a famous Athlete in our country. We all like to boast having the top athlete. And I think anything we can do, stand up against
1: him, we have to do it.
0: And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week.
1: There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week is Bob in Woodstock about his thoughts during Ontario Budget Week and the lead up to the provincial election call.
6: I'm not impressed with the Ford government. I do realize they inherited quite a mess from the liberal government. The whole thing with government coming along, making all kinds of promises when they want something from us, I think they have to go on their track record where they really didn't give us anything. I wish there was somebody to vote for. I don't see anybody with enough backbone to do anything. They, they go whichever way, the wind happens to be blowing
1: three six seven nine six three six i'm jane brown join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of fight back
0: the best of fight back is produced by jane brown justin Eacock, and zeev Hadi, with technical production by kelly robotham executive producer moses nimer